or to measure ourselves based on whether we have, um, ha have done certain things or, or not. But when it's a rhythm, we recognize that these are recurring practices in our lives, and together as we are involved in these, these practices not only root us to the very hope that we have in the gospel, uh, but through their practice, they begin to form us spiritually, form the way that we see, form the way that we act, form the way that we respond in, in, in God's presence. And this morning, we look to the rhythm of serving which in one sense we are going to be looking at in two parts. This morning I think it would probably be more appropriate if I had labeled it in preparation for serving. Uh, but one of the rhythms of our lives is we are called to serve, serve one another, to serve our neighbors, to serve even our enemies. Uh, but in the scripture it's also very clear, it's not about our zeal, uh, on zeal alone, but as we are to t undertake any endeavor, there is a necessity of preparation in the task, the passage we look at this morning will help us to recognize the necessity of having that rhythm of preparing to serve even as we commit ourselves to serving. Uh, the passage that we're going to focus on this morning is Mark chapter 10 uh, verses 35 through 45, but for the context uh, we're going to be reading uh, beginning in verse 32, uh, Mark 10 verse 32 and read through verse 45. Before we come to the word, uh, let's go to our God in prayer that he would speak to us through this word. Our Lord, we do come with great thanksgiving that you have not left us to wonder about who you are or our relationship with you uh, or anything involved in our relationship, but you have revealed yourself and you have revealed your way and you have revealed our way here in your word. We do pray that as we take this time and commit it to ourselves, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, opening our mind and our heart and sharing with us, showing us your way that our minds and our lives might be renewed and changed and transformed, that more and more we might become like Christ, thinking his thoughts after him, living our lives in him, and seeing his fruit through us. Lord, we pray this to you, for all of our efforts would be in vain, but your power within us produces great fruit. To your name be glory, in Christ's name we live. Amen. Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May the Lord grant us understanding and hope from his word. I have to admit that there are times when I read various portions of the Bible and I am tempted to scratch my head and wonder, perhaps sometimes even aloud, what were these guys thinking? And this account here in Mark 10 is one of those episodes that baffles me. I mean, just recap what we just looked at uh, as we, we read. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he says essentially to them, let me clue you in on what's going to happen when we arrive in Jerusalem. I'm going to be accused of things, and then I'm going to be arrested, and then I am going to be beaten and flogged until eventually they kill me. All in all, kind of a bummer of a conversation. I mean, this is not an uplifting kind of thing to be saying. It's heavy, heavy weight. And yet, what we see immediately thereafter, the next thing that happens after Jesus is sharing this heavy reality of what is before them, we see James and John come to Jesus and said, now when you take over and come into your kingdom, we want you to set us up as co-vice presidents. We want a position where we can demonstrate not only that we're committed to you, but where we can do good stuff and then people will know that we, are, we belong to you. And, we're, and so people will, will just know of just how serious we are and how, how close we are. Now, even if you think that that's not really that bad of a request, at the very least, I would assume that you would have to admit, admit that their timing could have been better. I mean, think about it this way. If one of your closest friends comes to you and says, I just got back from the doctor and I've just been told that I'm terminal and I have three months to live, it would be as if you were to then say, oh, then can I have your tickets to the Super Bowl? I mean, it just, something is just missing there, this heavy weight, and all of a sudden their, their, their thoughts go to themselves and, and whatever might be coming next. They just, just seem to be missing it. And even if in this text there was some time that elapsed between the time that Jesus had shared with them what was going to happen, and it was not the immediate response, the literary, literary construct of this passage suggests to us that it was still close enough to when Jesus had talked about this news, that he was going to be betrayed and killed, that they should have had that on their mind. It was still somewhat inappropriate for them to be thinking about the positions that they might have, whatever their motives for their positions might have been, whether they were purely selfish or whether they thought that would be where they could do the most good. We're not told specifically what their motives are, uh, or at least, uh, or at least uh, exhaustively. And so I tend to look at James and John, and I want to scratch my head and think, what were these guys thinking? 
Part of the reason for my confusion is this, is like most people, I'm prone to look at the Bible as a manual about how to live and how not to live. And as a consequence, I can read this story or other stories, but this one in particular, and say, okay, now I get it. Don't be like James and John. Be a servant instead, right? Message over. Tim Cleary asked me for a short message today, so it could be over with. It's not, but sorry, Tim. Uh, but, um, but really, that's, that's kind of what we take from it. And it's not wrong, because clearly the idea here of us being a servant, and as Jesus develops it and talks about the attitude of a servant, it is clearly implied here, and we do see something not necessarily right about what James and John were saying and what they were doing. And it's important to recognize that while the Bible does give us models of how to live and models to follow and models that we should not emulate, we have to remind ourselves time and again that that's not the primary purpose of the Bible. The primary purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. And when we come into passages like this, it's important for us to understand that the primary, import, uh, primary point of this story is not to give us a model, an example of what we are to follow, but the primary purpose is to tell us something about Jesus and our need for Jesus. In other words, we see the story and what we need to remind ourselves is that we need to glean from this some understanding of what is wrong with us, that we need a savior. The primary purpose of these stories is like hold up a mirror for us to be able to see and to see ourselves in these stories and that we would gain insights into our own hearts and something that would help us then to recognize the necessity, our dependence, and the benefits that we have, the fact that Jesus has come, why it makes it important that Jesus has come to us and for us. And so I want to look at this passage here in in Mark 10 in light of that reality. And as this morning, we look at the the rhythm of serving. And clearly, this passage, again, has something to say about us being servants. The implication is that those who are followers of Jesus Christ will engage in a rhythm of serving and serving other people. But this text is a great reminder that Jesus expects more of us than simply to be active servants, that we need to have our hearts as well as our attitudes and our actions shaped by the very heart that is revealed by God in this particular text. And need to realize that it's not primarily a warning against being like James and John, but that we would see through it, that we would see what Jesus is doing through James and John, that is able to then shape our perspective, our hearts, and therefore our lives. Now, the first place we probably ought to begin is just with the disciples, because they are the ones that Jesus is interacting with. And the first place to begin with is probably helpful just to understand something about James and John. Many of you already know this, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. James and John were brothers, and they were part of Jesus' inner circle. Of the 12 that Jesus had called that were with him continually, there were a few, a handful, that were of particular closeness, and James and John were part of that inner circle with Jesus. They were the ones that were closest to him. James and John also were, not only were they brothers, but they were known as the sons of thunder because of their fiery disposition and their quick temper, at least in their younger, youthful days. While it's not in this text, but if you read in the Gospels the accounts of Jesus walking with disciples, there is an account in which Jesus had gone and preached in a particular town, 
and the people had not particularly responded in the way that the disciples would have liked. And so as the disciples were leaving with Jesus, James and John had the idea that these people, having not responded, that Jesus ought to call down fire from heaven and just burn the whole city down. It was the first and the ultimate expression of turn or burn. That was it. I mean, literally, he wants them, you don't respond, you're dead, you're toast. We're going to burn you out. Burn you out. And so they were known as the sons of thunder because of that temper and that judgmentalism on their, in, in their lives. Now, they were still works in process, as are we are. And here in this particular text, they have an idea. They go up to Jesus and say, we have an idea. We want you to do for us whatever it is that we ask. It's an interesting sales technique that they apparently had picked up somewhere along the line. If you've ever been involved in sales, you never ask a question that the immediate response is going to be no, or the possibility of the answer is to be no. You prime the pump, get them conditioned to saying yes, or at least dialoguing, so that you're in a better position to get the response that you want. And since they were very aware that Jesus was very giving, had provided for them everything they could possibly want, loved them more than they even understood, they went and they said, we have an idea, we want you to give us whatever it is that we ask. The issue, though, was Jesus was a little bit smarter than they probably had hoped, and he said he needed a little more information. So when they said, we want you to do whatever we ask, Jesus says, what is it that you want for me to do? And so they said, we want you to give us these kingdom positions, places that we can serve, advance your kingdom, places we can advance ourselves, places do it, enable us to do things that will make us feel good about ourselves, that will help people to understand God. We, we just think this would be a good place for us to be, to be at your right hand and at your left hand. And Jesus then, I think, probably somewhat amused as I read this, says, look, you don't know what you're asking. And he asked them a question. Can you drink from the cup with which, from which I'm to drink? Can you be baptized with a baptism by which I will be baptized? In other words, you don't know what you're asking. This is far more difficult than you can imagine. And their response was, we can handle it. Whatever they dish out, we, we're up to the task. And I imagine him particularly more as Jesus at that point being very amused, probably even smiling, and at the same time saying with a, a bit of irony as, well, the reality is you will drink from the cup that I drink from. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, all of the followers of Jesus Christ at some point or another, and particularly the disciples, were going to experience rejection, persecution, and all, with the exception of John, martyrdom. Jesus, in a shorthanded way, is saying, you're going to experience these things, but you still have no idea what it is that you're asking. And even though Jesus says, look, you're going to experience all of these things, you're going to go through all these things, you will endure all these things, it's not my place to say who's going to sit at my right or my left. In one sense, it's above my pay grade. That's determined by the Father, and it's reserved only for whoever it is that the Father has said should be at my right and my left. Now, as we look at the text, it's an interesting situation that happens. Somehow or another, we don't know how much time has taken place, and we don't know how they heard, but the other disciples became aware of the request and the audacity that James and John had gone and asked this question of Jesus. And so the text says to us that they began to become indignant to James and to John. Indignant, essentially, the simplest way of defining that is they acted without dignity. 
They became like you know, little kids that were fighting with one another, pointing and whining and complaining and said, I, I, I can't even finish their sentences. Can't believe you did this. Can't believe you said that. And kind of mumbling under the breasts and complaining and just acting in a way that grown men apparently are not supposed to act. They're just acting like kids in, without any dignity whatsoever. They were so incensed with what James and John had done and the audacity that they had. Now, I need to ask you a question. It's a, it's a multiple choice question. It's part A and part B. Why do you think James, the disciples were all angry that James and John had asked this? A, because the disciples recognized the inappropriateness and self-serving nature of such a request and consumed with a passion for God's glory, they were repulsed by the idea that anybody would be so self-serving rather than serving God. Or B, they wanted the same thing and James and John beat them to the punch. Answer, A or B? B. B. Most scholars and commentators would agree with you that they all wanted the same things, but James and John just beat them to it. Now, with that understanding, one of the things that we need to see from this particular passage is that it shows us that there are two kinds of people. All 12 disciples show us two types of people. It's a fairly common technique in the scriptures. We see it with the parable of the prodigal son along with the, the older and the younger brother. That passage is for us to say, okay, there's two types of people. Which kind of person am I more like? And this passage is doing the same thing. One of the reasons that I believe that's the case is what happens and what doesn't happen in this text. So we never see Jesus going to James and John after he had that discourse with them. We don't have him say, look, guys, I'm glad we had that settled, but we really need to talk. You need to just kind of tone down your ambition. It's just not appropriate for you to ask things like this. We don't see that Jesus did that. What we do see is Jesus waited until the other disciples showed themselves, and then he brings the disciples all together at the same time, and then he addresses them and telling them, here's the way that the world functions, and it's not going to be the way that my followers are to function. Jesus brings them all together, and by bringing them all together, I think he opens us up to see that he's showing us that we need to consider who we are like or what we are like, and the two types of people are this. There we are all on our own selfish ambition, but we go about it in different ways. There are some who are very bold. They'll hand you the resume, whether you have asked for it or not. They'll tell you why they're the best person for the job. They just jump right in front, and they force you to say yes or no one way or the other. And then you have others who want the same things, but they're passive and just hoping that somehow whoever is in charge will see their innate greatness and why they're the best person for the job, and that they will be given the opportunity to do the very things that they desire to do. There's two types of people. And we look at this particular passage, what we need to be asking ourselves is, is this, is which one am I more like? It's not a matter of saying, don't be like this, don't be like this. But as we hold the mirror up, we then begin to look at ourselves and say, am I more like James and John? Do I serve myself by asserting myself? Or am I more gentle and more patient and more reserved, and as a result, feel like I have more either dignity or, or qualification, and, and I'm more passive, and sometimes being frustrated with the people who are more aggressive. See, we're forced to ask ourselves, which one are we more like, so that we begin to see a picture of our own hearts. And Jesus began, addresses that in verses 42 through 44, when he says, Jesus called them and he said, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must become your servant. And whoever would be first among you must become a slave of all people. So Jesus is saying, now that your heart is exposed, here's how the gospel, here's how a follower of Christ is to respond. Not by being assertive or even passive so that you are in the position so that you are considered great, but by becoming a servant. That the measure of the follower of Christ is maturity is not by how much you do or how much is done for you and how many people are working for you, but how many you are serving. It's a paradigm that he has turned upside down. Now, if the passage stopped right there, this would be a classic religious passage, right? Because the whole issue of religion is to look at your behavior and your attitudes, see the example of the way things are supposed to be, make the necessary corrections, and move on doing things the right way. We could stop there. But the gospel does not stop there because it's not pure religion. It is pure relationship. It is a transformation, and Jesus goes even further for us as we consider this, because he doesn't stop with the instruction of what our attitude ought to be like and why we ought to not be like the prevailing culture. But verse 45 is significant for us. And Jesus says that here, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, for those of you who like points, if the first point was that it's an exposed that, that the, uh, this incident exposes that there's two kinds of people and that we need to see ourselves through that and find out more about ourselves and to find out how we exercise our own desire for identity or our own self-ambition and what our technique is in, in getting what we want, we also need to see, secondly, the key word in this particular verse is the word ransom. It's not a word that we use very often in our culture. We use it, you know, if you watch a movie and somebody's been kidnapped or uh, then there's a ransom. And ransom simply means a price that is paid to purchase back, to recover. And ransom is a necessary word for us to consider as we consider what Jesus is saying to his disciples because Jesus said he came to buy us out of our bondage. See, the word ransom shows us that our primary problem in serving Jesus is not that we're not following Jesus' example well enough. But the word ransom says that to us that our problem is that we are all enslaved to our own self-interest in one way or another. That is our primary problem. And so no matter how we reorient our behavior and our actions, we still are enslaved. And many of us serve and many of us do a number of tremendous and good things, but we are doing so because we are trying to serve our own self-interest. We use even serving for the sake of the kingdom or serving other or serving the poor in order for people to think well of us, to think that we are humble or that we are great or whatever it is that we want. We have these self-desire, self-interest, and we use our actions and behaviors, whether aggressively or passively. The passive person says, well, I do things, but I don't want people to know about it. The aggressive person wants everybody to know. But either way, we are highlighting what we believe to be of most importance. And Jesus says, look, we're all enslaved. All of us, are, all people after the fall are enslaved to our own self-interest, no matter how we approach it. And we just look for an opportunity to better our situation or to improve our reputation or to ease our conscience. And our natural bent is to use other people, even through service, in order to get what we want. We're enslaved to that. But Jesus says, I didn't come to give you an example of how you can become a better servant. I came to deliver you from the slavery of your own self-interests. I came to set you free. I came to pay the price, my death, 
in order that you would no longer be enslaved to your own self-interests. See, Jesus reveals to us the condition for all of us, and we need to either come to grips with that. At this point, we're either saying, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me to set me free from my own sin. Or Jesus, I don't buy it. It's important as we move on and we consider how this affects the way we live our lives and particularly the way that we serve because clearly, again, the implication here is Jesus is preparing his disciples that they are going to go out and they are going to serve and they are, have to embrace a totally, radically different approach to things than is the prevailing view in the world. That's why he says, look, when you go out, when you do these things, it's not about getting people to work for you. It's about serving other people. He's, the clear implication, the clear expectation is that the followers of Christ are going to be servants of all. But we also need to take seriously what Jesus says here, that his primary purpose in coming is not to be served, but to serve. And we need to think about that, especially in light of the way that many of us may live our lives. Now, of course, within our congregation and any congregation, there are those who really don't serve much at all. I'll talk with you next week. Um, and that's clearly contrary to what Christ has done. We serve our self-interest by letting other people do stuff. There are others who are highly ambitious and tremendous servants, and they serve with zeal and expertise and productivity. And yet often we neglect to remember what Jesus says. Because we do all of our service and we do it for Jesus, we are serving Jesus. But Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. So we who are active in service in one way or the other need to be asking ourselves, am I serving for Jesus or am I letting Jesus serve me? And if the reality is that in our zeal and in our service, we are even doing tremendous things for the people around us and serving for the sake of the name of Jesus, but not conscious, not developing the rhythm in our lives of letting Jesus serve us, we are denying the very purpose in our actions that he says he came for. We are saying, Jesus, people need you to serve, but I do not need you to serve me. I'm just going to serve you. And in so doing, we're demonstrating our greatness, our thanklessness, and our missing the very point. And the very message we want people to get our lives and our actions are counterproductive because we're trying to enlist them to our cause rather than bringing them to Jesus where they can be served and served and served. Now that point does not suggest that there is no service. Again, we are called to serve. Jesus is making servants, but he is saying that in our service we must consciously be served by Christ. And that is difficult for us to embrace. I think it's just part of our mindset. And it even can come with those who love Jesus the most. Because Peter seemed to have missed this. In a moment, we're going to come to the table where we will experience Jesus serving us. But on the night that he established this table, he also did something else. He took a bowl and a towel and began to wash his disciples' feet. When Peter came to him, 
Peter recognizing the incongruency of this action, he who is perfect, who is great, is now on his knees and is serving. He who is sinful and who is lesser is getting served and recognizing this just doesn't make sense. Peter said what many of us think, whether we would say it or not. Jesus, I should be serving you. Do you remember what, Peter, what Jesus said? Peter, unless I serve you, you have no part of me. And for many of us, we're zealous about our service, but not building into our lives the recognition of proclaiming to ourselves over and over again the gospel through which Christ has served us reminding us that he has ransomed us and has redeemed us and he has set us free without reminding us and being strengthened and being served by Christ. We are serving our self-interest in the name of the kingdom, but Jesus is saying to you who are most active in service without being, you have no part of me. It's a very hard word, but then Peter gave the response that we ought, he got it at that point. And he says, Lord, then don't just wash my feet, wash me all over. He recognized his need to be served by Jesus in every aspect of his life, his constant need of Christ, and that Christ had come to serve and that he was willing to receive the service, but by receiving the service, he would be empowered and enabled to serve and be fruitful in a way that he never would be able to, no matter how well, how faithfully, how zealously he exercised his gifts. And you and I need to be aware of this and asking ourselves, have we built into our lives the commitment to be served by Jesus? Or do we just say, Jesus, you set me free. Thank you. I will take it from here and I'll let you know if I have any problems. I'm the latter. But in the love of God, demonstrated in the person of Christ, calls us to be renewed in him, to be served by him, to be strengthened to him, be reminded that in him we are accepted, that we are freed, so that we are free to go and do service, even service in which we might fail, even service in which we might be rejected because we're already accepted, even service in which we might die because we're already alive in Christ. And the call for us all this morning is to resolve to be served by Jesus. We're going to come to this table that Jesus initiated in order for us to be served.